never watched. He had long since disappeared from movies and the hit parade. If children of the 60s knew his work at all, it was from his perennial hit record of White Christmas, TV reruns of his road pictures with Bob Hope, and his duet with David Bowie on Little Drummer Boy. They would have been amazed to learn how advanced, savvy, and forceful a musician he had been in his prime. That was the cost of having played every man too long and too well. Harry Lillis Crosby was the most influential and successful popular performer in the first half of the 20th century. His was the voice of the nation, the cannily informal personification of hometown decency. Friendly, unassuming, melodious, irrefutably American. In his looser and wilder years, when the magnitude of his stardom was without precedent or equal, he had been reckoned the epitome of cool. But universal acceptance demanded of him a willful blandness that obscured the full weight of his achievement. Of the few musicians who had synthesized modernism in popular music and jazz, Crosby received the least serious attention from biographers and critics after 1950. What Edmund Wilson wrote of Charles Dickens's standing in the 1930s describes being Crosby's at the time of his death. He had become so much a familiar joke, a favorite dish, a Christmas ritual, that pundits no longer saw in him the great artist and social critic that he was. But more than familiarity laid waste to Crosby's reputation. Popular culture plays by the numbers, and Bing's numbers, and the aesthetic they represented, were shaded by those of rock. His art was now as remote from demotic tastes as classical music or jazz. Four of the last century's most treasured singers died in quick succession in the late summer and fall of 1977. Elvis Presley on August 16th, Ethel Waters on September 1st, Maria Callas on September 16th, and Bing Crosby on October 14th. All were American-born, and all were celebrated beyond the idioms with which they are primarily associated. Of them, Bing's stature seemed especially secure. His obituaries triggered so many record sales that MCA, DECA, could not handle the orders and farmed them out to other plants, requiring more than a million discs per day. Yet on the twentieth anniversary of their deaths, only Elvis's memory was widely acknowledged in mass media. Two years later, Newsweek devoted 40-plus pages to Voices of the Century, America Goes Hollywood, in which Crosby was not mentioned, except to caption a photograph with Frank Sinatra. In the decade following his death, Crosby's personal stature had been tarnished by a one-two punch. First, there was a savage, ineptly researched biography that ignored his art in its haste to show that yet another departed hero had feet of clay. It was soon followed by a resentful memoir by his alcoholic eldest son, Gary Crosby. Under the law, the dead cannot be libeled, and those books, published in the early 1980s, generated an irresponsible piling on. Unfounded rumors were passed off as fact. The fading portrait of the imperturbable crooner, the soul of affection, the totem of cool, was replaced by the crude rendering of a pinch-faced, right-wing, child-beating philanderer. His contemporaries had a more accurate sense of him. Crosby was a phenomenon in the cultural life of the United States long before the war. He had helped lift morale while elucidating the American temperament during the Great Depression, the worst years of privation in the nation's history. Combining musical cultures as no one had ever done, he sang in every idiom short of grand opera, 
he made the country a more neighborly and unified place. After the war, Crosby became an even bigger star, selling more movie tickets and records than ever, serving as a steady barometer of the post-war mood, a bulwark against the reign of paranoia, an outrider of the affluence that followed. Without any dramatic outward change, he had somehow been the right man for successive crises, assertive and optimistic through Prohibition, the Depression, and hot and cold wars. He had the chameleon's ability to reflect his surroundings and the artist's discernment to illuminate them. If Churchill, in his Savile Row pinstripes with his cigars and learned oratory, incarnated the British lion, Bing, in his peculiar motley, shirt tails, beat-up hats, torn sweaters, mismatched socks, with his pipe and preternatural calm, embodied the best in American individualism. In 1943, H. Allen Smith observed, He has been the antithesis of all that the Sunday schools and the Boy Scouts and the Y secretaries taught. And look at him. Of the handful of artists who remade American music in the 1920s, Crosby may be said to have had the broadest immediate impact, if only because he reached the largest number of people. He played a decisive role in transforming popular song from a maudlin farrago steeped in minstrelsy and vaudeville into a swinging, racially nuanced, and internationally accepted phenomenon that in one form or another dominated the age. He was by no means alone, yet he attained a matchless orbit of popularity. Most histories of the Depression and the New Deal never mention Crosby, as if the rantings of Huey Long or Father Coughlin exercised greater impact on the public temper than Brother Can You Spare a Dime, The Last Roundup, or The One Rose. Yet as many as 50 million people tuned in every Thursday evening to hear Bing's Craft Music Hall, 1935-46. Consider that the hottest TV series of 2000, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, peaked with 36 million viewers. Popular art listens, absorbs, reflects, harangues, and can, in troubled times, console. Crosby's records were as reassuring as President Roosevelt's fireside chats. In a national poll conducted in the late 1940s, Crosby was voted the most admired man alive, ahead of Jackie Robinson, Generals Eisenhower and MacArthur, Harry Truman, Bob Hope, and the Pope. Bing was less impressed with himself. He remarked in 1960, As far as I am concerned, with the exception of a phonograph record or two, I don't think I have done anything that's really outstanding or great or marvelous or anything that deserves any superlatives. Emerson wrote, Every hero becomes a bore at last. Even to himself. Except for a confederation of minstrel troops and chains of vaudeville theaters, the entertainment industry barely existed when Harry Lillis Crosby was born in 1903 to a lower-middle-class Anglo-Irish-American Catholic family. The wax-recorded disc was three years old, and the first Nickelodeon was two years down the road. The first regularly scheduled radio broadcasts didn't begin until 1920. Over the next half-century, the United States forged the first empire dependent not on strategic colonies, but rather on the irresistible sway of its popular arts. Crosby's prestige was crucial in shaping that empire, in spreading a new world style and image. Not the least of his achievements was his role in ensuring the prosperity, in some instances the very survival, of several major entertainment corporations, including CBS, NBC, ABC, Decca Records, Paramount Pictures, and Ampex Tape.
Crosby was the first white vocalist to appreciate and assimilate the genius of Louis Armstrong. His rhythm, his emotion, his comedy, and his spontaneity. Louis and Bing recorded their first important vocals, respectively, in 1926, Heebie-Jeebies, and 1927, Muddy Water, and were the only singers of that era still thriving at the times of their deaths in the 1970s. When Crosby came of age, most successful male singers were effeminate tenors, and recording artists were encouraged to be bland, the better to sell sheet music. The term pop singer didn't exist. It was coined in large measure to describe a breed he invented. Bing perfected the use of the microphone, which transfigured concerts, records, radios, movies, even the nature of social intercourse. As vocal styles became more intimate and talking pictures replaced pantomime, private discourse itself grew more casual and provocative. Bing was the first to render the lyrics of a modern ballad with purpose, the first to suggest an erotic undercurrent. The great cultural critic Constance Rourke identified the three regional stereotypes of 19th century American humor as the Yankee, the Backwoodsman, and the Minstrel. Bing remains the only entertainer to embody all three, producing in the bargain a 20th century composite, often described in his day as the common man. Bing's discography, a compilation of 1,668 songs, not including hundreds more he sang on radio, is astonishingly comprehensive. It enfolds the Yankees' Tin Pan Alley, Backwoodsman's Western Laments, and the Minstrels' Old South Ballads. It explores every idiom, class, and precinct of American song, from hymns, anthems, spirituals, and novelties, to Hawaiian, Irish, 